the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today i have the pleasure of being joined by ben Oshiroff. welcome ben thank you thank you for having me that's what people thank say you. on these podcasts right yeah or npr or <laughs> what have you thank or you, for uh, me. you know yeah well i wanted to give our audience a, a gist or some context on how i came to know you i originally starred your github repo cool. <laughs> which for our audience that are curious what that repo is, it's uh, Maxwell's Daemon, which is a pretty nifty tool that Ben, while working at Zendesk, created. For our audience that don't know what it is, do you mind giving people a quick intro on what it is and why people might use it, Ben? Yeah, uh, Maxwell's Daemon is a change data capture tool for MySQL. In essence, it takes your bin log, the, the record of your updates to your uh, MySQL database, and sort of unrolls them into a stream. Uh, that stream can be Kafka, or it can be Kinesis, or any number of uh, different uh, downstream producers. But the essence is you now have a log that shows you from the beginning of time, or from the beginning of when you install Maxwell, uh, everything that's happened to your database. Um, so your, your standard SQL database moves from being just a point in time snapshot where you can see, okay, this is the state of the world right now, but I may have missed all these things that happened before into something where you can follow along uh, the events that happened to your database and respond to them as though you were processing events. Um, this can be really useful. One of the main uses that uh, people have found for it is ETL. That's that's the big one. That wasn't actually the original purpose of Maxwell's Daemon as I wrote it, but ETL is, is the biggest one. I've seen people taking their MySQL database, uh, putting it through Kafka, and then getting to Elasticsearch, uh, getting to uh, uh, CockroachDB, getting to all kinds of other platforms. And it's, and it's very good for that because it's a reliable transport where you don't have to do these giant select stars. You can just start your stream, start playing the stream, follow it along, you know, do whatever data munging you need to do and ship it over to your other, uh, to your other platform. You alluded to this, but what was the genesis, the reason that you first made it? Uh, yeah, it was sort of serendipitous in a way. Um, Zendesk had a feature sort of um, Zendesk is, is a ticketing system, a help desk system. Uh, and one of the main ways that we would allow you to access your help desk was called views. And these were basically user-generated SQL queries um, that were incredibly freeform. Um, you could query on, you know, uh, maybe one of 20 different fields and then and and or those fields. Uh, you could do tags queries, which is very hard for uh, a SQL database to do. And um, this worked for, well, Zendesk, its bread and butter was small, medium-sized businesses. And you can build these kind of features, these kind of like, you can query your data however features for small and medium-sized businesses. But uh, some of those businesses will grow up to be giant ride-sharing platforms or, you know, giant peer-to-peer uh, -peer housing platforms. And suddenly, your little feature that you built for someone who maybe has a volume of, I don't know, maybe a few hundred tickets a day, right? At, and suddenly, 
you're looking at like millions and millions of tickets uh, a day and querying the active set, which is, you know, 40 or 50 million uh, records in sort of an arbitrary fashion. <clears throat> so this was just, um, let me back up for a second and say that I, I gained a little bit of specialty in the field of like scaling um, particular types of websites, um, especially before the Amazon world, where they handle a lot more of the scaling for you. Um, and so I sort of naturally fell into that role at Zendesk and I became kind of the lead engineer of infrastructure, um, which also meant that I was the lead housekeeper of the problems. And one of the biggest problems was this, the, the view system, which was the arbitrary SQL engine. Um, so just to give a example scenario, somebody using a ride sharing platform might open the app and have a frustrating experience and go to file a ticket or maybe this might be an internal ride-sharing company employee who files a ticket on behalf of a customer, uh, you know, reporting a bug. That filing activity creates a ticket in Zendesk's MySQL database. Correct. And that event, that change of data event, would then stream to a Kafka. Yes, perhaps. but let's let's get let's slow down just a little bit. That's that's the eventual world, but like. In the, the scenario that I'm describing is a support help desk agent working at this fairly famous ride sharing company would say, show me all of the tickets from our help desk in Bangalore where the rider gave two stars and it's not assigned to any group. And it has this particular tag about uh, some Bangalore specific incident that it would happen. And just and then they would be running that query periodically and our databases would choke. So that was that was gotcha. sort of the problem I was trying to solve, and I had this incredibly harebrained scheme, and I think other people probably have had this idea, which is that, well, maybe I can build um, an adaptive query cache. Maybe what I can do is I can say, okay, I can watch the stream of SQL queries going by. I can calculate which ones are the most expensive to run just by measuring them. Say this query has taken four seconds to run and it's being executed thousands of times and it's hurting the database and um, melting, melting us down. So maybe I can then cache that query, right? And keep the query up to date based on a stream of updates to the database. Does that make sense? Yeah, so another phrasing might be a, a streaming query where you're incrementing a counter when an event meets a certain queries criteria. Yeah, exactly. So instead of instead of doing a data scan or data seek across all data uh, that the query might touch every time that query is ran, you could keep a running tabulation of the query results as new events occur. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we basically we went and we we sort of aped um, we aped our, our the the part of our code that generated SQL. We had it generate uh, like a little um, JSON query language. I think I actually used the Mongo query language, right? And then we had a bit of the engine. They would capture a point in time from the MySQL database, right? If you were doing this in Spark, you would just say, okay, well, here's a streaming query from the beginning of time. But because these queries were, they were coming up all the time, right? New ones were coming up all the times. We would say, okay, we'll capture a point in time cache set 
from the database, and then we'll keep that cache up to date with the uh, the CDC uh, events and filter. Uh, <laughs> I got a little tongue tied there, but um, we will keep that cache up to date based on the streaming. And so it, this was a wildly ambitious project to do these kind of like adaptive uh, query caches. And I divided it into three parts. I said, okay, well, I need some kind of streaming engine from the database, like uh, moving, you know, changing databases to something more scalable was not in the spec for this. Uh, okay, so then I need the fire hose, and then I need the cache engine, and then I need the front end layer. And I built all, we, me and a team built all three of these parts. First, we built Maxwell, which is sort of like the fire hose, and then we built uh, a query caching layer, and then you know eventually the a, a front end on top of all of that. Uh, I will say that, and it's serendipitous because getting back to that. Um, Maxwell was the only real success out of that that project. I can say, like, my code worked. the The caching code worked, but at the end of the day, it was too. Oh, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to describe the failure of the project. I think it was too specific. Maybe I think really, really great projects um, will actually they'll find use cases outside of the problem that you're trying to solve for your organization, right? And I and I think Maxwell like. Was, was a was a good idea and a specific idea that then it blossomed into other use cases, right? So at Zendesk, um, I, I, we were having a lot of like, um, what would you call them? A lot of problems, growing pains that a lot of, I think, mid-sized companies have where, you know, uh, you've grown very, very fast. You've added a bunch of teams, right? And the teams are unclear on how to communicate with each other, right? Um, or do you do APIs? Do you shut down the entire company and like say everybody has to do, you know, uh, uh, SOA like right now, right? And so Maxwell's Damon came along just at that time where like things were really painful. You know, the, the company must have had 20 teams of engineers who couldn't figure out, you know, the right way to work together. Like streaming was definitely on the table, but like no one had really done a big Kafka project. You know, HTTP was was on the table as well as far as uh, communication between services. But like, you know, it was all it was all very undefined. And Maxwell was like, oh, here's a way where all of our updates already can just go into a stream, can go into a Kafka stream and a different team can consume those updates for more or less free. I mean, it it, it does lock you into the schema of your database and, and there's 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 issues there, but it's it's implementing a CDC platform like Maxwell can give you a lot of like we like cheap wins as far as breaking up your team for a very low cost. Now you're going to pay some technical debt later because you're not, you know, outputting well-formed Avro events that everyone's well-specified in a repo. You're just saying we'll have at our bin log stream. But if you need, if you need a very quick way to decouple your teams and like streams look like a good idea for you, Maxwell can really help there. Sorry, I, I feel like I've gotten a little off topic, but yeah, whatever. No, you're definitely on topic. I, I want to generalize for audience members who might not use MySQL. And so they may be questioning, you know, why do I, why should I care about Maxwell's daemon? And I mean, if, if, 
none of the things Ben has said resonate so far. I, I would be remiss to not point out how this exists for other databases too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Postgres has uh, both a bin log, but also logical replication was added uh, a couple a few years back, which similarly you can subscribe to you know change data events uh, happening in your Postgres master and um, publish them to Kafka. Um, there's also, as Ben's pointed out to me, uh, Red Hat has an open source project called Debezium or Debezium, not sure which, uh, which they aim to provide uh, connectors, so to speak, for uh, different databases, including MySQL, to accomplish this publishing of change data capture events to Kafka or what have you. Uh, so, yeah. Debezium is uh, Kafka specific, but you get, I think you get MySQL and Postgres as as databases. Definitely, definitely. But let's so, not spend too much time promoting my competitors, you know. Ugh, ugh, yeah. <laughs> but what is, what is, what is like, it's so weird because like, you talk about like competitive competition in the open source world, right? Like I feel that I'm like, ah, oh, Debezium, those guys are, those guys are ahead of me in some way, but like, <laughs> but I'm simpler, like operationally. It's like, why do I care? It's like, I'm giving away this source code for free. Like you just have this thing. You want everything to be a success no matter what, you know? I think it's, I think it's that, you know, open source projects are brands and it's very rare to see something open source survive a long time. Mm. And so if you can make something survive, the more valuable that brand is in the open source software world. Like um, any new programming language, for example, gets extremely scrutinized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you, if you, you know, you're that employee who's at that software company and you're like, I'm going to introduce Rust. Mm-hmm. We should all be using Rust. You're going to get a lot of institutional questioning of, okay, does anybody in our company know Rust? Um, what's its backward compatibility? Like, sure, it's got, you know, whatever feature XYZ, but um, I think one of the most important characteristics about open source projects is their longevity. And in that respect, I think Maxwell's daemon has more longevity than Debezium. I think Debezium started after a little bit longer. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not a pissing competition. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, but I mean, but if you think about, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm backing up a little further. Like you think about the, like the maintainers of, of these platforms, Linus or Matt's or like Guido, like, like they don't get the big bucks, right? They're, they're like, they're well employed. You know, they can work anywhere in the world they want and they get to work on, on what they want. And maybe that's, maybe that's really the key at the end of the day is that they wanted to work on this thing and then they got to at the end of the day. But it's interesting because in the world of engineering, like the top engineers that you can think of are not, I don't think they're the most well compensated engineers. They're just the most famous and their software is the most used. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Which Perhaps makes them the richest of all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Cynical jokes aside, uh-huh. uh, let's take a step back. And I wanted to uh, share your career story with our audiences about um, how it is that you came to software engineering. And uh, never mind Maxwell's Damon, but mm-hmm. uh, how did you find your way to Zendesk? What 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 
what engineering problems intrigued you to, you know, explore software engineering as a career? Mm, yeah. Um, you know, my accidental career in engineering. Have, have people asked you, let me just ask you before I get into this, like what have people asked you about the title? Yeah, have you, oh, have you talked about this on this podcast? Cause I just feel like enough, that enough. my entire career has been an accident. Um, I wrote my first computer program when I was five. It was a loop in basic that, uh, streamed fuck you, Peggy on, I think <laughs> some kind of, it was some kind of old IBM. The other classroom had an Apple too. And I got banned from the computer for like two months, you know? Um, and I, I remember writing in, in logo on the old PC junior that my dad brought home. Uh, was it logo with the, with the turtle that you would move around the screen? There was a really cool, it was a really cool, like, uh, beginner's language. Um, and I taught myself to code when I was 12 and my dad gave me my first programming job for $10 an hour when I was 16, uh, writing visual basic. Uh, and then, um, like I was at like a crossroads when I was, when I was 17, my dad died. And like, it was like right before I was about to go to college and I just couldn't see myself going to college at all, let alone for software engineering. Um, and so I sort of just drifted for a couple of years, uh, did temp work, but like, I just sort of realized that software was everywhere And this temp work. I started writing code to help me like do data entry. It was some like terrible job at an insurance company. And I was like, I was there writing like little bits of code to help my day to day along. Right? And I was like, at a certain point, I'm like, what am I doing? And like, I'm just like wasting my life away here. So I went out and got myself a job doing software development when I was about 19 because um, I needed some money and I wanted to move out of my mom's house. And so I really haven't looked back since. Was it a matter of walking down Main Street and seeing a sign for Sally Joe's software <laughs> department store and walking inside and thumping your fist on the desk and saying, Hey, I'm Ben and I'm your man. I'll uh, code for you. Uh, no, my, my uncle's friend gave me my first job, Dan Quinn. Okay. <laughs> he, was, he was great. He was, he's definitely one of my heroes in this world. Like, uh, he took a chance on like a, on a lonely and broken 19 year old. And I worked for him for a year and then the internet started to really like take off. And, um, I was in a band at, at one point and, um, my band's, Music was in this online competition for a record contract, and we came in fourth in the record uh, in the in this music competition for it was a company called GarageBand.com, and me and my bandmate went in uh, to talk to the CEO about like having a small development deal for our, for our band, and the CEO just looked at me and he's like, "Oh, you can code?" and I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Okay, come back, come back tomorrow. We'll talk about getting you a job." And it was, and so, yes, it was kind of like Sally's department store <laughs> in those days, right? Like you can code, you have, you have a pulse. Great. You know, come on in. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, so that, that was, I was there during the, the first, the first internet heyday. That was a lot of fun. We were all making it up as we went along. Um, learned a little bit, but more or less i just i just had a lot of fun those days um and then you asked how i came to zendesk i'll skip over some years in between because you know who cares but um 
However, I, I do want to I do want to touch on something you've already told me about, which is how you came to Zendesk, or or what what was it that you that that attracted you there? Uh, do you want me to do you want me to tell you the MySpace story? Sure, sure. Yeah. If that's a if that's a relevant lead up. Yeah. Definitely. Um. So, I GarageBand became a startup called I Like. I like was one of the first uh, music platforms on Facebook. I learned a lot about you know, scaling websites and databases and, and going where I was needed. I think that, that, that became, you know, I think you asked how I got interested in some of these things. And I think, I think for me, it was always like, where am I needed? Where, where can my skills be useful and where is no one else going? Like if, if all of the engineers at the company want to build features, well, then I should be in infrastructure because that's where I'll be most useful. And if they all want to be in infrastructure, like helping scale, then I'll go do features. Not just to be apart from everybody else, but to see a need and try to like gain expertise in there. So um, anyway, during I Like, I learned a lot about scaling. I Like uh, failed in... Uh, I don't know, 2011 or 2010, something around there. Um, and they failed via being sold to MySpace. MySpace wanted to reinvigorate itself as a music platform or something. So I like, I like got sold as a fire sale uh, to MySpace. It was, it was, we were doing internet music and it was really hard in those days to do it uh, legally. The record labels um, 10 years ago or whenever we were doing it were, we're not happy doing streaming music. Um, they eventually came around, but uh, the startup had, had gone under by that time. So uh, as a fire sale, they sold, I liked MySpace. MySpace said, stick around, we'll retain you for a bunch of money. I said, okay. You know, little did I know I was, I was really selling out in an unpleasant way. So in MySpace, like they tried to actually, we, we, we made a good faith effort the, the employees of I like that got bought and, and sort of moved into MySpace. We tried to give them a music service, a streaming music service. Cause MySpace had, um, they had better licenses than anyone else in the music business because the record industry owned uh, quite a bit of MySpace. So in theory, MySpace was actually positioned to become what Spotify, uh, eventually became, but they couldn't do it because they were just too, too ill as a company. And so that effort collapsed and I was just sort of sitting there with nine months on my retention uh, going, what the hell am I going to do for nine months? Right. Like a guy came along and said, hey, you know, I know that you have worked. You wrote uh, a music recommendation algorithm for for I like, you know, um, artist similarity. Uh, pretty much every online service has this now. And we had it, too. Um, the original algorithm was given to me by the father of one of the CEOs of iLike, who was actually a, a nuclear scientist back in Iran. And uh, <laughs> he couldn't he couldn't do any work anymore because, you know, they, they fled Iran during uh, the deposal of the Shah and all that stuff. But anyway, I digress. He gave me the, the initial algorithm for doing collaborative filtering. And I had written this initial um, recommendation algorithm for iLike. If you like artists like X, you might also like artists like Y. Um, and so some guy came along and said, hey, you know, I know you did work in this area. Why don't you build something, dust it off, build something for MySpace. MySpace needs artist similarities, needs a recommendation algorithm. 
and we have nothing, you know. And I said, oh, okay, okay. It seemed like a fun challenge. And like, and suddenly I had access to this, this huge data set, which was MySpace, right? MySpace had great listener data, like more listener data than you could, you could imagine. So it was, it was fun to work with that. And I found some trick where I had a, I had my buddy, I had my buddy in mind. I needed to find my buddy, Ian, who knew everything about like, country music from the 1970s, right? He could tell you, oh, you like Guy Clark, you're going to like Towns Van Zandt and Steve Earle and all these other guys. And he also, so he was like incredibly specifically into like these weird little subgenres of music and knew everybody from that little cluster, that cloud, right? And I figured, well, if I find Ian in my listener data, right, I'm going to be able to write a really great recommendation algorithm because I'm going to actually be able to like know who's great in each genre. And I, and I worked it out that if you, if you like windowed, um, if you, if you sort of like filtered your user base based on how popular their tastes were, like the more you listen to the Beatles and Britney Spears, um, the lower your hipster score would become. Right? And I had that like that metric, the hipster score. Um, so it was a hipster minimization <laughs> algorithm. No, the hipster maximization algorithm. Maximization. Gotcha, right? gotcha. Because, because most people's music tastes don't actually show you that much specific. They're listening to just whatever comes their way, you know. Um, and it's only a few people that are really deep into, into genres that maybe um, can, can link one artist effectively to another. Um, and so I threw away or minimized the importance of like 90% of my user base and then uh, found like a sweet like 10%. And it turned into like, it was a decent recommendation algorithm. I think maybe um, there were some other ones that uh, I think uh, Last FM's was maybe a little bit better than mine, but like for a one man effort, I was really proud of it. And so like I productionize it, I cash it to hell and back and I like, the, the, the guy who I was working with was really excited. He said, here's a great recommendation algorithm. We've got it, right? And I go and I'm brought into this meeting with uh, the co-CEOs of MySpace. Co-CEOs, yeah, that's, that's a good sign. <laughs> Two people running the show is better than one. Um, and I realized quickly that I was in a meeting with the CEOs and a 20-person team, the head of a 20-person team who had also been building a music recommendation algorithm and like I had been unknowingly baked off against this recommendation algorithm and they're sucked and didn't scale and like mine won and it shipped, but they were epileptic. They were so pissed off. They said, let us never have this happen again. And it was, it was so, it was so horrific to me to know that like in a really sick culture to build good technology is, can be like, can be a sin. And so, you know, I, I, before I came to Zendesk, I was just spending my time on the golf course and by the pool, right. Not doing anything, which was also a, really a, a soul clawing experience, but coming to Zendesk, I just wanted somebody who respected the craft and who had fun and who cared about building a good product. And I found those guys. I had no idea whether it would be a success I think a lot of us who came to Zendesk in the early days when there was like 10 people, none of us thought it would 
you know, become like a $3 billion company, right? We were like, oh, we were just, we were just, it was a stopover before we went to the next like big idea. But like, you know, uh, I, I guess it just goes to show you like what a small team of like people who are really dedicated to building a great product can do. And with a healthy dose of luck, of course. Of course, of course. Um, so yeah, so I was looking for that. And then I just, I, I just, I don't know, I grew up with Zendesk. Um, I'd always been a hacker. I'm still a hacker at heart. I love clever solutions probably more than is good for me. But um, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's the Danish blood of, of Zendesk because they come from Copenhagen, but they're, they're really fastidious engineers, right? Um, there's sort of a, a, a sensibility to the, to the product that they build right? Where they will prefer boring technology, right? Boring technology that makes sense that is proven over like your wild hacks. And I had to curb my wild hacks and be like, learn about cleanliness of code architecture, you know, the importance of testing, like all of these things. I was definitely a cowboy coder and, um, and they really helped me grow up quite a bit. And you joined them as employee number 10. Is that right? Mm-mm. No, no, I wouldn't say that. There was, I, I was about probably employee 50 or something. There was, okay. there was an engineering team of 10 to 15 guys gotcha, at that gotcha. time. And they had like the, the, the founders had been working for seven years before they moved to San Francisco to, to make it big. So for people who aren't aware, Zendesk's now a public company. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've alluded to some of the marquee customers <laughs> earlier in the show. Um, <laughs> What what's it like being at a company that changes in headcount as rapidly as Zendesk did? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very disorienting, right? Because uh, you're the reality around you is changing every single day, right? You're you're hired on, or I was hired on with fifteen guys and a website with you know growth up and to the right, that sort of like hockey stick growth. And we're all just holding on for dear life, right? The databases are crashing and every feature that we ship is, you know, is, is burning down, right? It's like we have, uh, and I don't know if you, if you remember this, but back in the day, like some websites would actually take maintenance to ship. So like Saturday afternoons at 12 PM are like maintenance window. And that's when you deploy and like do whatever database migrations that you need to do. And let's hope it goes right. And so like you start from that, world and you're like this band of uh of of brothers and sisters like like you get this foxhole mentality of like it's us against the world and all we want to do is keep the lights on long enough to survive to the next day right like and you're constantly beset with issues and then you know and then and then the, the landscape starts changing around you right um more and more people are hired you've solved some of your your worst problems but now you have new problems of like, well, maybe you've made some bad hires, right? Maybe, maybe communication has started to break down because you have no systems in place for like communicating between what's now teams of people, right? It used to be there was eight guys together and you all knew what you were doing. Now you have no idea what the other people are doing. They're breaking things, you know, like, um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because the world changes around you, but it's not quite fast enough to actually point a figure at it until, you know, six years later, you look back and you go, this is, this is nothing near the company that 
I joined. Now we have corporate issues and the original, a lot of the people who are around back then feel it's stale and that we can't move fast enough, right? And it's like, I think the most interesting thing about making like a six year, like, you know, uh, 50 to 1500 person um, uh, arc, like an IPO arc, is that in some ways you look back and you see uh, you see your failures from six years ago. The things that you didn't know, your failures are now reflected and like magnified throughout this entire organization, right? Like I wasn't necessarily in charge of this decision, but uh, Zendesk didn't move to AWS soon enough, right? And like we didn't see the writing on the wall as far as like managing our own data centers, which were vastly cheaper at the time, right? But we didn't see that the cost of that versus the cost of AWS would would cross each other very, very quickly as they did. And so like, so we never pushed to like move out of our own data centers, right? And by the time it became clear how wrong that decision was, it was like suddenly we have a thousand people all trying to like get hardware provision in a data center. And we're like, oh my Lord, what have we done, right? And it's like, now it's a big outsized problem that's really hard to fix. And you can see those, you can see those kinds of problems both technologically and uh, like culturally. Like you can see where, who you were as a team when you were 10 people and the things that you didn't pay attention to and the things that you did pay attention to, how those rippled out into this giant organization where now like now you have no hope of like fixing them or at least not in any quick fashion, right? They're part of the culture now for better or for worse, right? And so like, it can be, it can be kind of haunting to like exist in a, like a, a large organization that you felt like you were personally somewhat responsible for helping to grow up because it's like the problems are almost like your personal problems, right? Like if you didn't take responsibility for this thing six years ago, right? <laughs> It's like, and now it's big. It's like, oh, it's your fault, you know. I I think I think uh, you may be being humble to an excess here, and I think Zendesk has succeeded tremendously in spite of the issues that you're pointing to. You know, I think one thing that would be pretty interesting to me, at the very least, is you mentioned how the these Danish co-founders uh, were fastidious, mm-hmm. and I and some of this is probably pretty dated information. Uh, I don't know if people should really, you know, copycat this, but it would be cool to hear what what decisions like about tech stack or uh, what was running on the bare metal servers you guys mm-hmm. had uh, that you, you consider fastidious. I mean, even Maxwell's Daemon using Kafka, I think when Maxwell's Daemon first came out, Kafka was pretty new. I mm-hmm. mean, it had just been open sourced out of LinkedIn. Uh, so what were what were some of those decisions that, uh, or, or choices of technology or practices that you're referring to specifically when you say that early Zendesk was fastidious? It's I, I think it's less about the choice of technology. Um, I mean, certainly it was it was it was Rails MySQL. Nginx, you know, like a very, a fairly standard web stack at the time. I think the fastidiousness came in, I think, I I guess I would say the lack of accruance of technical debt that 
the engineering culture there always appreciated um, quality code, maintainable code, right? Tested code over get it shipped tomorrow, go, go, go. Certainly, um, we had our share of firefights, but the, the, the balance between product and engineering, like the power balance was fairly equal. So engineering wasn't spending its time rat-holing, building giant castles of products that no one used. We were building a product, but product wasn't pushing us to ship code faster than we could write it to where it would be maintainable, I guess I would say. And it's I, it's hard to, to point to any one given choice. It's almost like an, uh, like an ethic of, we are laying the architecture for a house, right? And we want that house to stand for 20 years, right? Uh, rather than, well, let's get this house shipped out the door tomorrow. And, you know, if we succeed, we'll burn it down and build another one, right? That's always the promise, but you, you, you never rewrite, right? You always ship your prototypes. You never rewrite. And so... Whether that was whether that was a specifically Danish thing or just something that the that the three founders had come to, I, I suspect it has something to do with more of a European sensibility of we are building this to be around in ten years, in fifteen years, maybe even in twenty years if if we're lucky. Not we're gonna go, we're gonna build this startup as cheap as possible and then like move on, right? You know, sell it and move on. Anyway. Makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. So I, I think I'd be remiss not to ask you about what any forecasts you might have for maybe, um, obviously, this is a crazy time in the world, uh-huh. financially, economically, culturally, with coronavirus going on specifically. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a ton of commerce that's transferring from the physical world to online, so uh-huh. there's a lot of tumult. Um, do you have any predictions you want to share for people who might be earlier in their software engineering careers about uh, where you see there being opportunity? You described how, how uh, as a software engineer yourself, you'd try to find the area where you were most needed uh-huh. in the employer. It'd be, it'd be interesting to hear your forecast for, uh, you know, are, are areas of front-end development exciting to you right now or areas of uh, working on the cloud? And provisioning type of stuff interesting to you right now? Uh, oh, that's, I mean, that's, I think that's a really that's a really interesting question. I had I have no thoughts about it before <laughs> the last five seconds. So <laughs> <laughs> take your time. Let's, take your time. Let's see what we, if we can wing it. Um, look, software is eating the world and will continue to eat the world for until they can make a robot that can write code. Um, if you're if you're a young engineer, um, yeah. You know, the world will change around you, but if you find, if you can keep yourself interested in whatever you do, keep yourself fascinated. Look, I, I, I skated out of high school, you know, I'm barely graduated and ended up like, you know, engineer number two at a very big company. And it wasn't because like I was diligent or dedicated. It was just because I was curious and I was always curious and always like studying whatever problem like seemed interesting to me, to me at the time. So if you're interested in building iOS apps, build iOS apps. If you're interested in big problems of scale, like 
well, you're going to have to go to, you know, Amazon, Google and Facebook at this point in time. But, you know, I, I think that's a fine thing. Um, uh, I, I, do I have any predictions out of like coronavirus specifically on things to work on? Oh, man. I have no idea what the world will look like in like you can pass tomorrow. Can pass. Yeah, I just, I, it's just, it's so hard. I mean, what? A, I'll turn that around. Let, let's just turn that around. What do you think? What do you think like is going to come in the next like two years as major fields of of study and computers and such? I I don't have any predictions about innovations that'll happen in uh, software, but I do think there's going to be just cultural change around recruiting and hiring and employing people remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a huge competitive advantage to people in the workplace who can, you know, meet up with their clients or managers in person. Uh, there's, there's nothing that compares to the type of communication you can have with somebody in person. Um, so I think we will go back to offices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think people will get a lot more savvy about video conferencing technologies and the type of software that we are using right now to record a podcast, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as people should, I think there's a lot of value in software people are creating now to improve latency and bandwidth of teleconferencing, also um, kind of faking it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of technologies like everybody now is familiar with green screen backgrounds of video conferencing. That's just the tip of the iceberg, especially with uh, non-engineers using video conferencing. For example, salespeople. I think there's going to be a lot of voice masking type of technology. And not to defraud people or to commit acts of evil, you know, um, phishing attacks. It's more going to be to aid in remote communication. So mm-hmm. these are these are areas that I'm really bullish on. It's not something I'm working on in my day job, but <laughs> you don't you don't think there's just going to be a, a continued rise in sort of asynchronous work? I think that a lot of work depends on and this is in software depends on synchronous communication, like mm-hmm. real time communication. Like because uh, I wasn't sure like I have I, I, I work with a, an old buddy of mine, actually an old Zendesk employee in Montana mm-hmm. and I find it very hard to do async engineering. You know, I'm always waiting on a question or a podcast. And I thought it was just cause I'm kind of a dinosaur. Like I, I'd be curious to know like what, uh, like how a 20 something engineer approaches the world of asynchronous communication. You know, I, I, yeah. my, I here, here's here in this, in this particular area, I think I disagree with you. And I think as, as workers do become more remote, I think we're going to have to learn to somehow operate with like five, five balls in the air at the same time, right? Like five PRs open and be able to like somehow context switch back into them in an asynchronous fashion. And I I don't know how we're going to like train our minds to do that, but maybe the next generation will just grow up with more, with more of those skills naturally from, you know, their social media mind fuckery that they've got going on, <laughs> like, like the, the poison that is Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. Maybe they'll be able to context switch more naturally and actually uh, multitask. But I, I think asynchronicity is actually, t- 
to me, maybe, maybe is one of the, like, is a theme that's going to come up. I, I can see it happening. I, I mean, I can see it also resulting in people investing a bit more in documenting things mm. to make it easier to onboard uh, peers or collaborators. Uh, I think one of the common tropes I've heard in Startup Land is, you know, about onboarding new employees, you know. The goal is to maybe get somebody to submit a PR and merge it on their first day on the job. Mm -hmm. And that requires really high real-time feedback usually, you know, like getting their laptop set up, getting permissions to everything. Um, I think there's a lot of best practices that are going to get more globally adopted to make it easier to on board and collaborate with people. I'm Mm -hmm. speaking abstractly here, but to be specific, things like testing you Mm -hmm. were mentioning earlier, a lot of startups and businesses have winged it and gotten away with, you know, not having an automated test suite, but, you know, having that manual test plan that you might do before and after you deploy a change. Um, I think people are in software engineering or in being remote asynchronous collaborators going to need to do a bit more to prove that maybe your pull request or change works Mm -hmm. and doesn't break other people's stuff. Um, When you're sitting next to them at a desk, you can look over and you're like, hey, you feel confident about that change? (laughs) (laughs) And you can see in their eyes, they're just like, "Eh, yeah, Yeah. it's a small thing. Or you can see like, "Uh, I got to do other stuff right (laughs) now. (laughs) Probably won't take down production. Probably. Probably. Yeah. 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 So these are best practices in my career that, I know I've been at places that don't, you know, practice continuous integration or uh-huh. uh, it's hard to even budget for a employee, you know, a set of employees that are familiar with automated testing uh-huh. or continuous integration. So, well, it's uh, like when you're when you're and I don't mean to defend like sloppy engineering practices, but when <laughs> you're when you're that size, you are always walking a tightrope between yeah. You know, between basically you've got failure on either side of you if you don't ship, right? Or if you ship crap, right? And you're yeah. you're trying to walk this like very fine tightrope where you are accruing some technical debt because you have to to move fast enough uh, to ship your product and to like to keep growing, right? Um, but you can't you can't go so fast that by the time you're a success, you're a failure. If that makes any sense. So it's a, oh, it's, a, it's a very interesting balancing act to be to be a startup growing like that, I think. Definitely, definitely. And I don't I don't mean to knock on companies that Oh no, we can have... we can totally shit all over them. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a test suite? What are you? What are you? What are you? 5? Here's a nickel. <laughs> Buy yourself a real team. I don't know. <laughs> but I one of as I've gone through different jobs with different companies, something I've appreciated a lot afterwards is the importance of being humble as a new employee and recognizing, like you're alluding to, that businesses, uh, you should be grateful they can afford to employ you. Mm. And just because your predecessors didn't have time to implement, you know, a test suite doesn't mean they're, you know, idiots mm-hmm. or, or like mm-hmm. uh, ignorant of these practices. It may be that it's optimal for them in their situation not to budget for that, that shit, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 it's the, the way that the supply and demand for engineers has changed 
in my career is kind of interesting. Like I don't, I think when I was starting out, you would never see, you would never see an arrogant junior engineer, right? Or it was, it was very rare to see someone coming out of college, like, you know, and I'm not, whatever. I, I, they are you're, in, sounding, you're sounding like a cranky old man. I am a cranky old man in some <laughs> senses, but like, you know, you know, like you're in, you are in that much demand, right? There's, if you enter the Valley with a good college degree, you know, you are getting fought over and getting a giant salary without having any industry experience whatsoever, you know? And um, so I think it, it naturally follows that people can, can have some egos as they start, not everybody certainly, but, but some young engineers can have, can have a lot of egos and can have, um, they can see a lot of things wrong with the company culture. Like you say, Oh, there's no test suite. This is all crap. This is all crap. This is all crap without, without really understanding why a decision might have been made. Um, yeah. Yeah. Acknowledged. Yeah. And I think, (laughs) and I think that that's, I just think that's an interesting thing that's changed over the years of my career, which is that, you know, that when you have 50% or whatever that statistic that gets bandied about of engineering positions unfilled, right. That, you know, we naturally become, uh, we can get a little arrogant sometimes and think that like, you know, our word is, is great. And that's fine. Little, little bit of hubris, never, never hurt nobody, but you know, I don't know. Stay curious, I guess. Those are, those are great parting words. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on, Ben. This has been awesome. It's great talking to you. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.